0: The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the host and the persons appearing on the podcast. These views do not reflect the views or opinions of any college, university, or institution the host or their guest may be affiliated with.
1: Hi, I'm Christy and I'm Vernita. Welcome to the Child Welfare Chronicles Podcast where we discuss the good, the bad, and everything in between.
0: We are both social work graduate students who are also in the child welfare field And have a passion for improving the lives of the people we serve and helping those who work in the field. On today's episode of Child Welfare Chronicles, we are taking a closer look at the history of child welfare. It's hard to make plans to move forward or change a system if we don't understand how the system got to where it is today. The information being shared comes from an article that we reviewed in class. The article is called Short History of Child Protection in America by John E.B. Myers. If we go way back to 1642 in Massachusetts, this is one of the first discussions of child abuse. A judge made the decision for children to be removed from their parents if they were not training them correctly. Typically, training back then was teaching them how to learn skills to help them in adulthood. In 1866, another court made the ruling that judges can intervene if a parent is neglectful of their child or children due to crime, drunkness, or any other vices of the parent. This is interesting because it helped how to hold parents accountable to taking care of their children when they are dealing with mental health or substance abuse issues that we use in our practices today. We've seen a lot of cases of a parent who may have untreated mental illness losing custody of their children, but unfortunately, they don't always receive the support that they need to help address this concern.
1: In 1875, the first child protection organization was created. It was known as New York Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Prior to this, there was no such thing as CPS. The case of Mary Ellen Wilson is what triggered the New York Child Protection Society. Mary Ellen lived in one of the worst areas in New York City, known as Hell's Kitchen. A judge stated that the government or non-government agency was responsible for the protection of children. During this case, they actually utilized an attorney that was part of the SPCA because there were no child law lawyers at the time. There was one notable court case that went on to the Supreme Court. A parent tried to argue that he had the right to discipline his child as he seemed fit. The judge made the determination that parental authority needs to be practiced within bounds of reason. Furthermore, should a parent or adult utilize unnecessary cruelty towards their children And if they did, how would they be held accountable, and what punishment would they face for their crimes? 25 years later, after CPS was created, the first juvenile court system was implemented through the Juvenile Court Act. By 1919, almost all states had created their own juvenile court system. Through this act, courts had jurisdiction over neglected, dependent, and delinquent children under the age of 16. The purpose of these courts were to focus on delinquent children, which gave them the power to assist in child abuse and neglect cases. However, this act worked against youth of color and aided in them being disproportionately represented in both the child welfare system as well as the juvenile justice system. We will cover this in further detail in our future podcast recording.
0: By 1922, there was over 300 non-governmental organizations for CPS. However, more rural areas typically were left without any form of organization. This remains to be an area of difficulty in today's world, Most of our rural communities do not have access to the same type of resources and services as more populated urban areas. This makes it really hard to address concerns for both parents and children in the child welfare system because they don't have the same accessibility as some of
1: our other families would. Around the 20th century, states started to create state departments aimed to focus on welfare, social services, health, and labor. The Federal Children's Bureau was created in 1912. The Shepherd's Town Act was created in 1921 as FDR passed his new deal in 1935. Out of this came the Social Security Act. Under this deal, millions of dollars was provided to states to help struggling families.
0: By 1967, the majority of states passed laws that stated the government was ultimately responsible for protecting children. Although there were laws and agencies, the child protection agencies were not 24 hours and lacked the resources and services to address the concerns of their communities. So even though they had these laws and these agencies created, there still wasn't an actual CPS type of agency that people could report to and could follow up on the concerns. So we still really weren't addressing the concerns of abuse and neglect at this point. So this then begs the question of how did anybody actually define and assess for neglect and abuse of children?
1: At that time, there wasn't a lot to go off to be able to assess for neglect or abuse of children until the 1960s. As a result, abuse and neglect became the focal point in society. Medical schools began teaching about the signs of abuse and neglect. John Caffey wrote a paper on Better Child Syndrome. In this article, he talked about the abuse that he had seen in the hospital and that it was a shame that it was not reportable. Elizabeth Elmer then wrote about how little research is being done about neglect and abuse. This goes back to the basics. Without research, we do not have evidence-based practices to help influence or train workers. After this, more research begins to look into neglect and abuse of children. Thankfully,
0: the reporting laws were created in 1974. There was 60,000 cases of abuse and neglect reported. By 1980, the amount of reports increased to 1 million. In 1990, it doubled to 2 million. By the 2000, it is documented that there was 3 million reports. Although there are this many reports, that doesn't necessarily mean that there were 3 million reports of substantiated Reports, which Renita can talk a little bit about, too, in regards to substantiated and unfounded reports, there are a lot of times that people make reports, you know, out of good faith because they really are concerned about somebody, but they don't always ask the questions about what's happening, um, which leads to false reports happening. Um, We also sometimes see reports where family members aren't getting along, so somebody might call in a report to say somebody's harming somebody just to help themselves in terms of The conflict that might be going on in the case. Bernita, did you want to add a little bit more about
1: what you've seen as a CPS worker? When a case is indicated, that means that the report that was called in, there was evidence to support the claims of abuse or neglect. When it's unsubstantiated, that means there wasn't enough evidence to support the call for abuse and neglect. At this time, there are more unsubstantiated cases then there are substantiated cases, which is good because we don't want to have more indicated or founded cases. That would mean a lot of children are being abused or neglected.
0: I think it's also important, too, that we point out that even though a case may be unfounded or unsubstantiated, it doesn't necessarily mean that abuse isn't occurring. It just means that at that point in time, there wasn't enough evidence to support it. So typically with that... The worker will try to put in services to address concerns and also to make sure that there's somebody's checking in on the family so that if things are occurring, we can get a better picture of what's going on.
1: Also, when a, a report is unsubstantiated, it might not mean like the child is not neglected or that they're not being abused. It might be that the family is just experiencing a hard time. Mm-hmm. So we do have a lot of unsubstantiated cases that come through where we put in services to help the families where they can overcome their situation. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, families of color are more likely to have more indicated cases as the reports are made. And it might be something as simple as they're going through a hard time. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into DMR issues and disproportionate minority representation issues later as we talk about child welfare issues in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's really cool how there's a lot of articles that talk about the culture of a family and how culture plays into it. And that truly is what we see a lot of times is that it's the culture of that family that somebody who's not a part of that culture looks at it and might make a report because they don't necessarily understand it. Um, one of my favorite things that I read is... How it says being poor is not a reason to make a child abuse report. And unfortunately, sometimes that's what happens is, you know, you have somebody who doesn't have financial resources. So their kid's coming into school dirty and unkept, but it's really because mom doesn't have a job because maybe she had an injury or they're going through a situation like domestic violence. And they can't afford to pay for the water bills. So if you can't pay the water bills, you're not bathing the same way. You're not washing clothes the same way. Or something as simple as a lot of apartments don't have washers and dryers that are free. So if you don't have money to pay for food or to pay your bills, the last thing that you're really going to think about is let me put them quarters in the machine so that I could wash my kids' clothes. So I think that goes back to what we were kind of saying about we need to learn how to ask more questions before we just make an assumption.
1: We really do. And we need to, as we practice, practice in a cultural competence lens or practice from a place of being culturally humble. 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 (laughs) Um, So once we can do that, I think we can truly assist these families in the way that they need to be assisted. Because when you come from a, a place of culturally humility, you're not looking for problems. You're looking for a way to help families. So I think that's a very interesting point that you brought up. Recently in the news, I just seen how a mom lost custody of her two children and were arrested because she left her 10-year-old at home with, I think, her
0: 4-year-old. Yeah, I just saw that. Mm -hmm.
1: And I thought it was sad. I don't think the children should have been removed coming coming from a place of being a previous CPS worker.
0: Could you explain why your reasoning is for that?
1: It wasn't like she went to the club. She was trying to go make money Mm -hmm. to be able to care for her children. And she also had a safety plan in place Mm -hmm. where she had people coming to check on the children every hour. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think you had a good point, too, is a lot of people don't realize that, like, there's no specific age, at least in New York. Like, there's no specific age that says when you can leave your kids home. Yes. It's all about the judgment. So even though that 10-year-old, maybe they're young in certain people's eyes, (laughs) How mature are they? Can they do things? So, like, it's, again, going back to those questions. Do you know how to call 911? Do you know who to contact? If
1: it's a fire. Right. And and we're talking about the history of child welfare in in our podcast today. When you think about history, children at that age were babysitting. Mm -hmm. They were working in factories. Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. That's why these laws and stuff came into play. But if you have a 10-year-old who is responsible and a mom, which it sounds as though she did, to instill her child to do the right things, call this person, call me, you know, she got her eyes, crossed her teeth. Mm -hmm. Those children should not have been removed. Mm -hmm. Instead, we should have said, okay, we might not like the fact that you Mm -hmm. have to leave the 10-year-old at home with the 4-year-old. What can we do to help you? Yeah, and what
0: about... County help with daycare. Yes. You know, I mean, a lot of times there's funds out there that we don't know about because, you know, we're outside of the county. We're not the ones working and doing it. So I think it's also going back to, like, what can the Department of Social Services in that area provide to that family? So if it's as simple as mom just needs a stipend to daycare for two hours because that's the gap of time she's gone – I think that's something that we can easily do, but it just really shocks me how she made the plan, like you said, to mm-hmm. have
1: somebody is check on the kid. She was still punished.
0: Right, because now it leads to what's appropriate then for a family, because yes. if your kid is old enough to take care of themselves and do things, and you have somebody coming to check in, what else can you do?
1: Yeah.
0: And I think it pushes families into this corner now of like, So do I quit my job and stay home with my kids and now we don't have money and are being judged because now we're living off the system like people like to say, but really it's because I was held accountable for putting everything in place that I could to make sure that my kids are taken care of and I can also provide for them as a mother.
1: Yes, and I agree. And we don't know how COVID affected families, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people don't have the ability to collect unemployment. A lot of people don't have the ability to get social services. So I really feel like this mother was just doing only what she knew how to do. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like a double-edged sword when it comes to child welfare. Because I feel as though if she would have quit her job and not been able to provide for the kids, mm-hmm. we would have took the kids anyway. Right, because
0: then you're looking at, does she have the means to feed them? Is she clothing them? Is she keeping up on their medical appointments? So it it brings these bigger problems to it too. And I think sometimes we're just so quick to say you're not a suitable parent that we're not asking them, like you said, what can I do to really help you? Like, how can I get you to be in a better place so you don't have to make this kind of choice? Yes,
1: we need to start having the tough conversations We need to come from a place where we are willing to help others in their time of need. That's how we become real social workers. That's how we become real Mm caseworkers. That's how we truly service the families in the child welfare system.
0: And I think that's just being trauma-informed. Like you said, Like you're really coming at it of a place of what happened to you and what can I do to help you? You're not here to judge them and to point fingers or to blame anything. It's really saying, okay, what got you into this spot and what can I do to help you get out of it? And sometimes we don't have the answers. I mean, I think people think social workers have these magic wands that like we can do around (laughs) (laughs) and we can fix all these things. And it's not about that. It's about knowing the resources and using the knowledge that we have from our own training and communities to help our families be better and not have to have further system penetration. I agree. As reports and incidents of abuse and neglect continued to rise, there was advocacy for Congress to assist. In 1974, Congress passed the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, or CAPTA. CAPTA allowed for federal funding to be given to assist with physical abuse, sexual abuse, and neglect. CAPTA put pressure on improving investigation skills and reporting. CAPTA also created the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect. This center helped to shape the CPS system that we see today. Um, It's really interesting how it talks about 1974 being the first time where Congress really got involved. There wasn't a lot of stuff previous to this where the government really had a saying or invested a lot of time into child abuse and neglect and child welfare. Um, It was really more like the counties and states individually. So this was really huge for Congress to get involved because it really put a push for more funding and assistance to help address these concerns.
1: Out of CAPTA came procedures and policies, rules, laws, and legislations, you name it. They really formed the CPS system that we see today.
0: It really was the piece that pushed Child Protection Services to be the way that it is. And as a CPS worker, The training that you have to go through now is very intensive, very long. Um, There's also specific trainings about sexual abuse. So there's training that not only you have to have to be a CPS worker, but also to work those specialized cases. So it really helps to inform our workers, and create practices that we can use to address these concerns.
1: Yes, and it also gave CPS more uniformity Mm -hmm. because prior to this, CPS was ran by private agencies, so the agencies had control on how they wanted to run Mm -hmm. CPS. Once the federal government took a leadership role, they became the governing body Mm -hmm. and they held the states accountable to what they were supposed to look for in CPS and how they were supposed to treat families and, you know, if children were supposed to be Mm -hmm. taken or, you know, remain in the home.
0: Well, I think it's really interesting because I I think that set the precedent for those types of acts to come into play, that it was really the governing body needed to hold these agencies accountable, like you said, and coming up with best practices for them and seeing the things, because if you think about back then, it was really... You didn't ask a ton of stuff and it talks a lot about investigations and that's truly what it used to be. It used to be, I'm coming in, I'm investigating, I'm getting the information I need mm-hmm. and we're either going to remove the kids or we're going to move on and close your case. Like there wasn't a lot of, let me try to find out what happened to you. Like we were talking about, there wasn't a lot of trauma informed practices with it. And I think one of the things that Vernita and I talk a lot about is really reshaping that word investigation to we're assessing the family. We're assessing that family for safety, for risk, for permanency, for well-being. Are those needs being met? And if they're not, what can we do to assist them? Because if you don't assist them, it just creates this constant cycle, mm-hmm. and if, you know we've. I think we talked about it before of the cycle of abuse. That it's just forever. This cycle of your parents abused you, so now you abused your mm-hmm. kids Trans- and their
1: kids. Generational. Mm-hmm.
0: That generational trauma is huge, and um, we actually just read an article about that too of how mothers who had their own trauma or had been maltreated as children were their kids were actually at higher risk. For maltreatment. So it's really interesting how that cycle comes. And I think part of the job of the CPS worker can really be to stop that, to really put a hold on that cycle and make it better for that future generation.
1: Yes. Generational trauma is one of the largest percentages of cases that mm-hmm. we see in the child welfare system. When, and that's when, crazy to
0: think about, you know, like that as a parent, and it goes back to, you know, social theory, right? Like you either learn from what happened to you and you change it, or you see what happened to you and you mimic it.
1: Yes. And we like to joke and I know it's not fair thinking about it. Now we always look at them as like Pete offenders and I'm quite sure it's not just a New York thing. I think it's, uh, that's probably a
0: culture of CPS yes. I feel like because a child
1: you, welfare thing, we call them, uh, you re- kind of get so used to fenders. seeing the
0: same people over and over again. And it's like, I think that sometimes leads to the burnout of the workers, too, of, like, why am I seeing you again, and what can I do differently? And if you
1: don't see them again, you see their children, their their grandchildren. Like, I remember seeing cases for a child, a mom, and then doing the history and seeing her history as a child and then seeing her mother's history, Mm -hmm. and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. What
0: do you think about that? Like, what do you think about the fact that our systems, we can run it back that far? Like, do you think that that's helpful in what we do in cps i think it's
1: harmful and helpful Mm -hmm. i think it's harmful because we create a bias Mm -hmm. we create implicit bias and we don't practice in the form that we should we were talking about earlier practicing from a a cultural humility lens and when you look at somebody history you always like i said the repeat offenders you're like oh here she go again here Mm -hmm. we go again they're not this and they just keep going on and on and on so I think it's harmful in that way. The only way that I see it has been helpful if you really have a, a someone that really wants to help the family, they can say, okay, I see that she has trauma from her youth. Let me have a conversation with her mm-hmm. or him about what can we do to make the situation different to get them out.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of tried and true interventions. Like there's all these evidence-based practices that can be used and that have been helpful. And I think... A lot of the agencies use them when you're putting services yes. in. Like we're using those types of things, but like the
1: overall governing body is not.
0: No, and I think that that's a lacking in training for people. Of like, or money, they don't get it. Or no, it's yeah, the funding,
1: cost. right? Because when you think about it, um, it's expensive to train people. <laughs> one of the one of the best interventions that's out there right now that I learned about in class this week was MST Kent Yep. It has a 95% success rate, but yet we don't use it.
0: Yep. MST is um, multi-systemic therapy, and it's actually a program that we can use in the community, but you have to be specifically trained on it. And I think there's pieces of it that even if you taught some workers the theory behind it, I think it helps. I, you know, I'm one that I think the more that you learn, the better you are. Like, you can't do better if you don't know better. Yes. And I think... Sometimes, even if we're not necessarily going to use that practice, it's good to have an understanding. And I think like how we're talking about implicit bias, mm-hmm. it helps to remove that from us to put an understanding of like, now I get why mom talks like that because yes. mom was treated this way. And if I apply this theory, oh, well, that makes sense. Or like, even you think of like.
1: It makes you deal with the traumas in, right. in, in child welfare history. You know, it's one of the best practices or interventions to use for repeat offenders, Mm -hmm. but yet we don't use it.
0: I mean, think even about motivational interviewing, which is another um, evidence-based practice that you can use that when you are assessing as a CPS worker, if you used these tools, it could change the outcomes. And typically in the better, like, keeping kids with their families, helping the parents get to it. And I think it's even going back to stages of change and having people understand if you're not in a state of change to actually change and you're in that first step, which is really, truly like that pre-contemplation, like I'm not really there denial type Mm -hmm. of thinking, you're not going to get that person to make those changes. So utilizing those types of practices can really help Bring them to it that next level. You, nice a of, you <laughs> get a lot
1: in your toolbox when you are trained. Oh, the social work toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> you, when you're trained in multiple interventions, mm-hmm. and I really believe, in order for child welfare to move in a progressive way and to really be the change that we want to see, we need more intervention. I
0: don't. I don't think that CPS workers need to be clinical workers. I don't think that they need to sit here and do cognitive behavioral therapy with their no, they don't families because that that would be unrealistic to expect of our staff to do
1: some of us i do believe some of them should have it not all of them but you should have some clinicians
0: for sure i think that you need clinical staff to bounce ideas off of to really look at it in a different perspective but i think it goes back to understanding the theories and those tools of like If I'm not a clinical person, how can I talk to this family to get them to where they Mm -hmm. need to be? You know, I'm just getting mom telling me to F off every day Mm -hmm. and I can't get through to her. What can I use to do it? And I think that's where those theories come into play. You know, I think about Maslow and the hierarchy of needs. Like, If we can't even think simplistic like that, how do we help our families? And think of times of crisis, even in yourself, in your daily life. Like there's times where I have low patience because I have other things happening. And I think as a mother... You have this intense pressure from society to do everything at once. Like you're expected to be this superhuman, so it's really hard for moms in particular to ask for help. So I think when a mom comes to you and says, "I need help," like that is so powerful because it takes a lot to get there.
1: And yes. so, with that being said, I'm going to go to the next topic that we wanted to cover. So we we've been talking about CPS specifically, mm-hmm. and we really didn't talk about foster care.
0: Which foster care is a huge part of the issue in child welfare. And we we will spend some time on foster care.
1: So a lot of people feel like although foster care was good, they also feel like foster care is part of the problem.
0: It created a system within a system almost of... Here, just take these kids and leave them here, and there's no other
1: options. Yes, and it was initiated to address the need for alternative placements for kids who can no longer reside at home. However, for children of color, it created a mm-hmm. huge issue. because It really
0: made them, I mean, they're in there for
1: how much longer, typically? Twice as long. That's crazy. Like Twice as long, and it might be longer um, than that, but I think, if my memory serves me right, it's twice as long than their white counterparts.
0: Which is crazy because you think how many kids have to be in the system of care for it to be twice as that. You know, I mean, it's just sad. It's sad to see that because you are a family of color that you're more likely to have your family torn apart than if you're white.
1: I mean, you even think about um, Native American family. Mm-hmm you know, Mm -hmm. out of CAPTA came ICWA in 1978. Which
0: is the Indian Child Welfare Act that protects um, the Native Americans, which we're going to talk about, too, because that's a huge piece of child welfare. (laughs) I mean, there's so much to talk about. And that's why, again, this podcast is so important to us, because it really is so much has happened in such a short amount of time. And it, it pushes you to question, are we doing the best we can for these families? I had to do a reading for class and it talked about how for evidence-based practices, there's like nothing on Native Americans. And it just made you think like, if you're a clinician, how do you know what therapies work best for this population? If you don't have any type of research that promotes it, because what works for your white client has nothing to do with that.
1: Because culture is such a big piece. Mm -hmm. We're different we mm-hmm. we are we are different we are raised different we think different you can put two kids two kids can grow up in the same house and they're going to come out different for
0: sure mm-hmm. services need to be individualized yes. it should not be one comes all like like we talked about theories like cbt It's great if you're fantastic at using CBT, but CBT doesn't work for every person. It doesn't. And you need to know how to adjust and change. And I think that that's why it's so important, again, going back to the trainings, of you need to provide your staff with different options because that's how they better serve their populations. And we
1: need to speak to our staffs and train our staffs about implicit bias Mm -hmm. because we all have bias and our bias affects us. Mm In major ways.
0: Mm -hmm. And if anybody's ever interested in implicit bias, if you Google online, um, you can actually take an implicit bias survey. Um, They're really interesting and they're actually really frustrating, I think, too, because some of it pops up and you're like, I'm definitely not ageist. Why would it say that? But it's that implicit bias. And um, I definitely think it's worthwhile to take a look at those to kind of help yourself sometimes, too, and check yourself of like, okay, well, maybe I am. A little bit because I think of like this Um, so definitely check that out too Um, we covered a lot in this podcast so thanks for sticking with us (laughs) we will be um, talking more about the child welfare system as we go through you know you can see the history of the child welfare system really set up why we do the practices that we do especially in CPS it's very interesting to see how long it took for laws to actually come into play for the federal government to step in and provide funding for services and addressing these kinds of concerns. In the next episode, we're going to talk more about the policies and procedures, specifically in regards to the disproportionalities of children of color in the child welfare system. Um, feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions. Our email is childwelfarechronicles@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And thank you for tuning in.